Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians, and welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Podcast. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians, episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And tonight we bring magic back into our lives with the season five premiere, Do Something Crazy. Written by Henry Alonso Myers and directed by Chris Fisher, IMDb is currently giving this a 6.8, though we are early to the game in recording this week, so a lot of our numbers might change along the way. First, we are so happy to be back with the magicians. To all you Clatchers who are returning, welcome back. To everybody just joining us for this season, if you haven't taken a look, you can go back to our library. We have a Break Bills 101 covering all of season one in one episode. Yes, we were being overly ambitious. But seasons two through four have full episode coverage for the whole season. The main structure of the episodes, just so you're aware, we go over our overall thoughts briefly, talk about what the critics are thinking, then we review new faces, places, and magic, a synopsis of the plot and our thoughts about it, and we give our rating on a scale of one to ten. The most fun, then we move on to MVM, the most valuable magician for the episode, where we put up a weekly poll on Twitter that you can vote on, usually four characters who won the week. And finally, we review our Clatcher's comments, what did you have to say, and a closer look, a deep dive on some element that we do some research on. Really excited to talk about this week's. We're going to discuss the Clockwork Heart Dwarf that we saw, and what are the implications about that, the bigger thoughts about time in general, and the future, the fate of our worlds. Now, granted, it's the first episode, so any theories we come up with is really a guess in the wind. But as the season goes on, we start to cement some deeper-rooted theorizing. And along with the help of the Clatchers, sometimes we get them right. But I'm feeling ambitious, Jay. I'm not afraid to put it all out there. Be the penny. Before we get into season five, let's briefly talk about where we left off from last season. And I mean brief. We're not going to do a recap. But we closed out season four finale with some pressing questions. It's important to say from this point out, there will be spoilers from all previous Magician seasons and this season five premiere. Because it was quite an intense season four finale. It left us with a lot, of mo- a lot of emotions and a lot of questions for where would they go from there. Some of the big ones. Are Fen and Josh still alive? Who is the Dark King ruling in Fillory? What's next for the library? What's next for the Hedwitches? Are the old gods even paying attention? And what's going to be going on with our crew after the enormous loss that they suffered? So at this point, one question has been answered. Are Fen and Josh still alive? Well, I think we have the beginnings of a bunch of these questions, actually. And we're going to go over that as we go through the plot. The showrunners have given us a tease as to what we can expect for these next 13 episodes. They said last season, magic was saved, but at a terrible cost, the life of Quentin Coldwater, who died heroically to save his friends and the world. Julia, Alice, Elliot, Margot, and Penny must learn to navigate a world without them. Now a new threat has arisen. In freeing magic, the balance tipped the other way. And there's too damn much of it. As the excess builds and apocalypse looms, can the magicians get their shit together to save the world without Q? Gamble told Den of Geek the theme of grief is something that will drive the story in season five. She said, Quentin's death touches every character on the show in unusual and unexpected ways. It will bring some of them closer together. It will put some of them at odds. And it brings things out in these characters that's really deep and specific. It's stuff we're really looking forward to writing. We know that besides the main group of actors returning, there will also be guest appearances this season from Sean McGuire, American Gods actress Yatide Badaki, and others. 
We also found out there will be a new co-showrunner to serve alongside Gamble and McNamara. That's Henry Alonso Myers, who has already served as executive producer for the series past and wrote this episode. And we have news about potential episode titles for the rest of the season, but we're going to save that for our spoiler section. We're only going to spoil everything up until this point, and then we'll give you a warning at the very end if we have potential news for things to come. Jumping into the season five premiere, I want to say right off the bat that I'm struck with the fact we have spent most seasons lamenting a lack of magic and inability to do things with magic we want to. This is the first time we have a surplus of magic. (laughs) It's going in the other direction. But with what we've learned in this show from episode one, season one, in this world, magic isn't all Disney. Magic here has ramifications. Magic here is dark. There's a cause and reaction when it comes to spells here. So the thought of too much of this magic is very dangerous. It causes as many problems as it solves, and we already have these surges we see glimpses of that are definitely going to get worse, right, as time goes on. This show also tends to open up this way, where we have a bunch of different story threads that don't quite seem to fit together, but of course they will at some point. We have Julia's story of trying to honor Q in some way with her magic, Elliot's deferred grief, Margot's time quest, Penny receiving strange signals, Katie advocating for the hedge witches, and Alice's connections to the library, as well as that bomb drop by the end that we'll talk about. I can't help but noticing the showrunners talked a lot how this season will be about dealing with the loss of Quentin and how everyone is processing their grief differently. Now, this is nothing new. If you've listened to us for Mr. Robot, you will be familiar when we dissect the psychology of our characters. We spoke in the last Robot final series about the five stages of grief and how we felt we were witnessing it in the characters over there. I'm sure it's easy to see, but it's worth mentioning that that's definitely happening here. In fact, there's kind of clear-cut people in certain stages. Right now, we get Elliot in denial or refusing to let those emotions in and really manage them. Margot's getting frustrated with him for it, trying to numb it out through alcohol medication. She's not even sure what he's using. In stage number two, you have Margot dealing with anger. And that's very fitting for her. Stage number three, bargaining. You do see Alice going through some of that, but she's bouncing back and forth. I really think it's more of Julia that's dealing with the bargaining for the majority here because she's asking all of these questions. He left me this gift. I thought my magic was gone. And while it's horrible and I don't want to go through this grief, I don't want to waste it either. I need to find something important to do with it. Can I have a quest? Can I choose that? Can I be the hero? Will that make a difference? She's really struggling with a lot of the existential philosophizing. You definitely have Alice dealing with depression in the beginning of the episode in a rough way. I mean, she can't get out of bed. She has no motivation for anything. She's wearing Quentin's clothes. Mm-hmm. And her desperation drives her to some dark places by the end. Yeah, her mom is no help. That advice. This mom is not the best. Do something crazy. But then you have characters like Katie and Penny who are moving more towards acceptance. Yes, this was a loss for them, but they've kind of processed it and they're adjusting to the changes from Quentin's death, from this excess of magic, everything else that's going on. And they're trying to help with the new structure of things. So how is this all going to weave together? By the end, we're not sure. We have some theories about how a few of these plots could intersect in the near distant future. 
I personally was really happy at the thought of getting more magic for once, but I was a little bit surprised that we didn't see more of that in this season premiere. I thought that we'd get a lot of great visuals akin to when Penny takes Julia to see the meteor shower. Well, now that magic is back, people can do things like this. Let's witness some of the amazing stuff. There's not as much of that going on, at least yet. Of course, there's always the magic of Fillory, and I look forward to any time we get to spend there. I really like the idea of what they're doing with Penny's storyline and him having to try to figure out how to teach these students. I wish we'd gotten to see a little bit more of that, and hopefully we will. What were your big positives for the premiere? Well, honestly, it was really good to be back. I don't remember specifically, but I thought that these episodes were at 9 p.m. in the past years. So this 10 p.m. in the middle of the week, we have work tomorrow. That's a little difficult. Wish we could turn back time on that one. But being with our quote-unquote friends, our magical buddies, being in our world where we can escape from reality for a little bit was so exciting for me. And this first episode is true to form for the magicians. We are introduced to several different threads that at first seem disconnected. Our heroes are going on different routes. But we've learned that in the end, these different threads will come together for the bigger story. We have a good setup of what kind of quests we are expecting from our heroes. And they've given a few clever ways to catch the viewers up on what's happening since we left. We have Elliot and Margot together for the first time in, I think, a whole season, pretty much. Oh, it, yeah, it's been a while because of the monster situation yeah. last time. So it's a reintroduction to them and the way they bounce off of each other, which is always hilarious, mixed with the clash of their personalities. So during their conversation, we learn about what's happened in the past. We learn about who's ruling a little bit more. And then we have the play, which was corny, but that was on purpose. And that caught us up real quick in those regards, which lets us know the quest that Margot and Elliot are going to be on to fix these issues. Or at least Margot. We'll see how much Elliot gets involved in that. I'm going to have to disagree with you slightly on that last point. I think that was maybe my biggest negative for the episode was there was a lot of exposition and heavy lifting through tell, not show. That's true. There was a lot of opening to each character in each segment. For instance, with Elliot and Margot sitting around having a drink. Well, let's remind you of where we left off. The fact that you were stuck with a monster all of last season. We haven't really seen each other. Now we've been trying to break into Castle White Spire for a week. It's not going so well. We're really missing Q. It's really just laying it out there. It felt a little laborious going through each one of our characters doing that and a check-in on where we'd left off, how they're dealing with their grief. I think I would have preferred to just jump into the action a bit more, much like Penny getting this position as a professor now or Alice being called to the library and stealing a book, and you find it out as you move through in a more organic way. I know that sometimes The Magicians has used that tactic, but I guess it felt like it had more production. For instance, when Quentin finds the story about the tale of the seven keys, and he's reading it out of a book, or we get a short animation in the background to show us, and it doesn't just feel like somebody is talking to me about it. And there were some areas that maybe feel like they're not falling into place quite as naturally, the stuff that's going on with Julia in general and Julia and Penny's relationship. Whereas Margot is picking up right where she left off last time, and I do like the scene of her seeing Josh and that emotional resonance that it just sparks back up in me everything that happened with them last season, and I really feel for them. There is certainly a lot to dig into. Before we get to our plot, let's talk new faces, places, and magic that we saw. 
For faces, we got to view the Dark King. We heard a little bit about him at the end of last season. He's been ruler of Fillory for the last 300 years. Yes, I'm not sure we got to view him, though. We didn't see him. Well, we saw... A depiction of him. A depiction of him in cosplay. Yeah. (laughs) Now, this Dark King, in accordance to the play, came in and, quote-unquote, saved them. He was a magician in hiding or in the dark that came out to save them. But... He's not a magician. If he was a magician, he, I don't think he would survive 300 years. So he's got to have some kind of god power. Is it one of the old gods? And they've done this to us before in the magicians. Uh, is it one of the gods that we know that is acting as? There is a lot more to unpack about the Dark Absolutely. King. They really just scraped the surface. We also met the charming, <laughs> and I say that in a facetious way, Sir Effingham. And yeah, that's Effingham. As in a chauvinist pig. (laughs) Seems to be another of the questing creatures. Now that's a bit hard to track because we had seven distinct questing beasts from the book. The TV is following some of them, but changing it up a bit. In the series in the past, we met the White Lady, the Great Cock, the Lizard of the Dunes, and now this Sir Effingham who can bestow a quest. So I have to believe he falls into that category. And I don't believe that's the end of him. It wouldn't seem so. He was looking for Q, which is interesting because that's all Q ever wanted was to be the hero of this story, right? And has this run-in with Julia that we'll get to. In Fillory, we met the Clockwork Heart Dwarf, and I'm not sure if he had a name. I didn't catch it, but he runs the Clockwork Heart at the center of Fillory. And finally, there's talk of the Takers that we don't have background on that invaded Fillory and the Dark King supposedly had to save them from these people. So I have a theory. It's very thin. Because obviously we know nothing. But just thinking about the world we're in right now, we see that Break Bills is overrun by students because of the overflow of magic. What I'm assuming is um, magicians or people that would have just tiny bits of magic where no one would really pick up on it, including themselves, now have an abundance of it. So they are, quote unquote, magicians. They're good enough at this point mm. to go to this school. I'm imagining and keeping in mind that we're in present time on Earth. And what we're seeing is a play about what happened 300 years ago, which would be the same time frame as in Earth. Mm -hmm. So this is just a guess, but maybe during this great unshackling, maybe uh, Fillory becomes overrun by humans who still don't know what they're doing. Trying to discover the magical world of Fillory. Don't have a good knowledge of how to use the magic. And we see they're pretty bratty millennials. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they have self-important issues. Maybe the invaders are just the humans. We also know that Fillory is perhaps a bit resentful for this rule that Ember and Ember put into place that we see in the depiction of the play. It has to be children of Earth that rule. They thought it was a ha-ha funny joke, but if you're a Fillorian, that's just another issue they have to contend with. These people don't know Fillory. They don't love it like we do. We have all these problems well, yeah, I think it wouldn't be that much of an issue if it wasn't for the spell that was placed on the throne years ago, where whomever was chosen to be king uh, ended up doing something, going mad, basically. Well, and how about we killed one of the gods? Well, that's true. <laughs> that's going to put them in a bad mood. That's in the play as well. So it finally gets to the point where they have this great unshackling and the Dark King deposes the children of Earth. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more to that that we're going to unpack as we go forward. And finally, for new magic, we had the Library Medical Manual, the spell book that belonged to the Order of the Library that Katie's trying to discover. 
through this book deposit so that they can attempt to help the hedge witches the library is no longer helping. You know, they told them they'd take Reed's mark off when all of this is done, and they're not. But also the library branch index. That's a book that shows the location of every volume and how to access it that Alice is asked to come help with the section they aren't able to uncover using her horomancy. And what we learned is how to access it. It looks like the library has the ability, even if the book is gone or stolen, if they can locate where it's at, they can use magic to bring it right back to the shelves. I think so. It says how to access it. So first you have this listing. The book is almost a card catalog. That's every volume we have on our shelves. How do you find it? How do you get to it? But some of them, it's trickier. Even once you know where they are, Alice has to do the horomancy spell to reveal the actual books on the shelf before Mm -hmm. she's able to grab one. Right. So I don't know how hard it's going to be for someone to figure out what she took, where did she take it. That's definitely going to be a cliffhanger. But the library can use her, and what they wanted to do is to get all the stolen books back. They for sure want to use her for way more. And she's fooling around with the idea, how much does she pretend to like them to get what she needs? She's not really going to work for them. They are falling apart. Zelda has taken off. They're in trouble. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's another area that I want to go over with you. We have had a lot of fun looking at this in the past. And that's the opening title sequence. The screen that we get of our city wall where the title The Magicians comes up and it's changed every season. The symbols, what's on there, what's not on there reflects what's to come in the future. We took a photo of the season five title screen and we posted it on our social media. Feel free to take a look if you haven't checked that out and let us know your thoughts. On Twitter, you can find us at CKC Podcast, Facebook, Coffee Clatch Crew, and Instagram. So Jay, right off the bat, we have a huge octopus. That's swallowing the moon. And we know the moon is very significant this season, mainly because the poster for this season is our crew and the moon above them. And the moon is cracking, basically from probably the overabundance of magic. Every year we we tend to break down the poster and overanalyze it. So we know the moon is a big deal, especially seeing it in the opening title as well. But why the octopus and the two big whales up toward the top? I have no ideas yet on that. don't know. Maybe magic gets so crazy that sea creatures are now swimming in the air. Or they have more power? What category do they fall under? And we have seen some pretty amazing things happen, such as underwater dragons, serpents. Yes. That are magical, that have knowledge, that our crew has talked to. So there could be other things down there. Yeah, but I'm assuming that it's just there's a magic surge and the earth is all screwed up and regular animals are just swimming in the air. And, you know, something crazy like that. (laughs) Well, they're swimming through the air towards all of these stars, the symbols of the hedge witch tattoos that have the keyholes in the center. Above that, we have mushrooms. And I was thinking, we've seen mushrooms in the past with the fairies. That's how the fairy babies are grown. But we, in this episode, learned that the heart dwarf is so busy that his only means of food are these magic mushrooms that make him trip a little bit. (laughs) That aren't that great. He's upset there's no ham sandwich. We still have what looks like the two ice axes. I was surprised because that felt a plot we wrapped up last season, but I don't know what else that could be. Well, I think it's going to be up to Margot to save Fen and Josh. And they have rested the camera on her tattoos a few times this episode. So I think maybe that storyline isn't over. And those have served to go up against creatures that have immense amounts of magic, such as the monsters in the past. Now, you then had to trap the essence in a bottle, 
but it could be a weapon that recurs. There is a pocket watch that we'll come back to in our closer look, surrounded by a couple of bees. And down lower, another insect that seems to be some kind of cockroach or beetle. No thoughts on that yet either. And finally, in the bottom right, there is the Order of the Netherlands poster that was there last season. The library sign when it was all neat and clean. Now it's askew. Got holes in it. Things aren't going well. It's pretty chaotic overall, the image. Now, just to touch upon the stopwatch, if you're coming here because you saw our social media call out in regards to the importance of the clockwork heart dwarf, don't worry, we will get to that in our closer look section. And there are many other elements on this screen, and we will point them out as the season goes along if they pertain to anything specific. Yeah, like one thing of graffiti writing. It has to mean something that there's just one, but you can't tell what it is. Yes, for sure. But for now, we're going to jump into our synopsis and review the plot. As we usually do, we've broken it up by character, so it's not necessarily sequential. We're going to talk everything Julia first, then everything Penny, and so on. As we said, it's been a month since the end of the last season, and we open up with Julia debating over a dress for her date with Penny when he arrives to pick her up, giving her his jacket so she'll be prepared for the weather. He takes her to a place where they're able to watch a magical meteor shower, courtesy of his friend Seth, who's regained the ability. He tells her there's a lot of ways to use magic to make the world a better place. Unfortunately, they're interrupted when the meteors start exploding, a byproduct of the magic surges they've been getting. No one knows what's causing them, and they're getting worse. So right away, we're seeing a different kind of Penny. This one looks a lot more chill, a lot more relaxed. He's not, and we've we've discussed this, Penny 40 had a darkness in him, a pain in him. This Penny 23 doesn't. In the romantic sense and how he is in the relationship with Julia, absolutely, he's far different. But when it comes time for him to teach his class later, there's much more shades of Penny Forty. That's true. Reminding you that they are essentially the same people. They've just lived different lives after a point in time. We also see what's happening in the dynamic of the relationship because Julia quickly becomes frustrated with Penny, telling him she only has magic because she lost Quentin, so she needs to figure out a worthwhile cause to use it for, such as fixing the surges. And Penny reassures her this is going to take time, everything, processing the grief of the loss, figuring out what to do with the magic. There's that bit of tension left over because, of course, Penny had to make the decision of what was going to happen to Julia. Would she be turned full goddess or back to human? And for a while, we thought human might even mean non-magician. So they've had a lot of history already. Here's a fun fact that probably a lot of the Clatchers know, but Stella Maeve, who plays Julia during the time of production, was pregnant. I believe she still is, actually. So I find it really intriguing and fun to see how the producers utilize camera angles and movement to try to hide that for the character. For example, when she's looking in the mirror in that beautiful dress, she looks amazing. Mm. When she turns, her profile is when you would see the baby bump. As she turns, she puts her hand on her waist. It looks so natural. If I didn't know she was pregnant, I wouldn't have even picked that up. It's almost a self-conscious gesture when you're dressing and you're kind of looking at yourself in the mirror, trying to look at the outfit, or sometimes the camera pulls up higher. But then there are other times where they kind of call it out. So you have this funny, completely ridiculous, because he's a swine, (laughs) Sir Effingham later, but there's a lot of mention about it. Is is your corset too tight, (laughs) ma'am, or something along those lines? And so we'll see her dressed in a lot of different dark colors. And I don't know how long the filming was, but maybe as she gets bigger, we, we just see shoulders up. Hmm. I don't know, but it's fun to watch. 
Or is that going to be something that comes into the storyline of the show? Maybe. Well, there's more going on with Julia. She goes to see Alice, trying to recruit her help for a seance to contact Q. She's really missing him and thinking, there's so many things I'd like to talk to my friend about, if only I could. You know, what if we could? Actually, talking to the dead is wild magic. It's way too dangerous. Well, then what should I do? Because I don't know, and the person I want to ask is Q. I miss him every day, too. I honestly don't know how to move on without him. I just, but we have to, right? Right? (laughs) You know there. Alice isn't sure about this. It actually does cement Julia's thoughts, though. You're right, we do need to move forward. So she offers Alice the book she found, World in the Walls, Q's copy with his notes in the margin, and she gives it to Alice so that she can feel close to him. That was a really sweet and sincere gesture, how difficult this treasure clearly that she's been holding on to to feel close to Quentin, but she knows that Alice needs it even more right yes. now. And when Julia returns to her apartment, that's when she meets Sir Hargreave, Mugrubney, Cubbins, Archibald, Brian Effingham III. He's been on a long journey from Fillory, so he's raiding her refrigerator. He has a dreadfully important apocalyptic mission. The fate of both their worlds lies in the balance. Julia rightfully guesses he's there to bestow a quest, but not for her. He was looking for Quentin and distressed to find he died. Julia quickly offers her help to save the world. After all, she's done it before, but he thinks she's not the right kind of hero, meaning she's a woman. And he leaves thinking, oh, a hero's bound to arrive. Julia understandably pissed, goes to relay the experience to Penny. And working through it herself, she thinks, well, in real life, you don't get chosen. You choose your quest. So that's exactly what she's going to do. Quest on. And I'm happy to see her with magic, back in action, with a purpose. This is something that she can do for Quentin. Do you think she's going to pick up the reins for Quentin not being there, as far as the one in the show that pushes things forward? I do, because she also has always sincerely cared about magic. Mm. She wanted to help Fillory at one point. She's just always had something else going on. So this could be a really good opportunity to bring her more front and center. I've had trouble always connecting with her story that at times didn't totally fit in with the rest of the group. And I think they're meshing it a lot better now. And meanwhile, Penny is having issues of his own. Dean Fogg comes to ask for his help at break bills. Whenever it exploded, magic went everywhere, and now there's too much of it. Too much magic means too many people with potential are discovering their gift. Lately, more people have been able to pass than we can handle. And now look at this place. Might as well be a goddamn state school. Overcrowded. Discipline problems. Did you know someone stole the school's supply of living clay? No. Of course, thanks to the surges, a few of them have blown themselves up. Which isn't very good for morale, but yes, it helps with the goddamn over-enrollment. With the rise in students has come a simultaneous rise in some of the rarer disciplines, like yours. So, who better to teach them than you? Well, I, I'm, I'm no professor. Penny, you're the only Breakbills educated traveler currently alive on this planet, which makes you far more qualified to teach them than anyone else I have, including me. But what if one of them gets killed because of me? Excellent point. This indemnifies you against any claims, legal or magical, that your students might make. That that doesn't actually solve my problem. Penny, I can assure you that without your instruction, 
One of them will absolutely get killed. He has him sign a waiver and get started. Penny has to stop signing things. Oh my goodness, 23 is making the same mistakes. Hopefully this one's not for life. These binding employment contracts. (laughs) Yeah, Fogg is saying later it's just the risk of getting sued, but I don't know, it feels pretty heavy. He's signed to be a full-on teacher. No, I think it's great for him. Me too, and I think this storyline as it progresses could be utilized as a growth for our Penny, and maybe the students have certain gifts that we haven't seen yet that can help him. I'm intrigued. Who did it make you think of? Where in the world is Mayakovsky? Oh, yes. We don't know. And Dean Fogg, just the, the parallels we've mentioned in the past to other characters in pop culture, he cares so much and he's always trying to help, but there's always these issues, too. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't a very nice thing to do. For my birthday, Christina got me the Magician's book, so I'm finally starting to read them. Christina being the one that always was in the know there, but I've just started. I wanted to ask you, does any of this happen in the book? Or are we off script now? We're almost totally off script. There could still be plot points that they're going to pull in, but I haven't seen any that track yet. Okay. I mean, the loss of Quentin clearly never happened in the book. So there's going to be so much that they were already shifting, pulling things here and there from time frames. I've talked about this in the past and I'm remiss to talk about it in the future because I have brought up things that happened in the books but said they happened in different time frames or or this was pulled from book three to book one it happened but it was different there it's so mixed and matched that I don't even think it's a good baseline anymore except for the essence the heart of it speaking of essence in the heart with the little that I've read the heart of Dean Fogg is completely different in regards to Again, where I'm at, the book Dean Fogg seems a little darker than our Dean Fogg. Seems to maybe care a little less. He's a little harder. How about that? I'll say harder. But at the same time, I always complain that Dean Fogg is never, he's there to help, but never really there to help. And it looks like he's, he's got his hands full now. Yeah, he's again, that sobriety. essence is the same. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I think we're actually getting much more of him in the TV show. So they've been able to expand upon that. And I think Rick Worthy brings something fresh to it that I love. Absolutely. I do wish we'd seen a little more of Penny teaching. I mean, we got this first class introductory psychic translocation where he essentially just blatantly tells the students being a traveler is a curse and they should just get tattoos and be done with it. Anti-traveling tattoos and leaves. The students kind of sit there blank-faced, look at him. Even when he returns, they don't engage much or talk that much until they go on this trip. It felt a little rough. For me, I liked it because Penny doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to be there. It seems almost impossible and very arduous to catch these students up on the dangers in being a traveler, especially considering his class. These kids don't look like they're too concerned about dangers. They seem pretty, I don't know, they look like little pricks Well, that's right what now. I mean. Well, there wasn't much to them either, though. There, there just wasn't a lot happening. And I can see what Penny is dealing with. That's always going to be Penny, caught up in his own stuff, not able to see past that until he comes back. And I like that. I mean, he has this talk with Dean Fogg, who's sober now, by the way. Yep. Tells him the truth about this employment contract and must return. It does seem, though, that he returns with a new attitude. I'm going to show you both sides of this. I've told you about the dangers, why you have to be careful. But I want you to see the good side, too. And that is something that he can bring to them. How does he do that? He takes them to a place that's not on any map. He tells them when you master your powers, you can go any place in any world. Even there, before they see the beautiful sky with a planet they'd never seen and a 
huge moon. They're like, so you sent us to the woods? It's like, you fuckers. Because they see the rock. Yeah. It's like, turn around. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. They're in awe of it. Once they turn around, I was putting myself there. And it was so magical. And it felt inspiring. And to hear the way Penny spoke in those moments made me feel like, wow, he's going to be a good teacher if he wants to be. It made me think of some of my more challenging moments. One of my day jobs, I teach at a university and I love the subject matter and most of my students are in this field in this major because they're passionate about the idea of it too and yet early on it can be kind of difficult to figure out how do you intrigue them enough how do you make this material seem interesting so they get the full gravity of where this is going to go someday Mm -hmm. it's not just words in a textbook and you have to be creative about how you stimulate that interest sometimes when it works you feel so thrilled. Yeah. Like you're making a difference. So I could definitely empathize with his moment where he's just sitting back on the rock watching them see this incredible place. She teaches at Hogwarts, but she <laughs> teaches theory. And that's the issue. They don't want to hear about theory. I'm a McGonagall. Except then I transform into a cat. See, that's what I mean. How do you hook them? This is also the moment when one of the students goes to speak privately with Penny, saying she hasn't been hearing voices, but rather a signal. Penny, perhaps foolishly, I'm yelling from the get-go, what are you doing? You're so cautious about everything and aware of the dangers, yet he quickly takes down his wards so that he can psychically connect with her and figure out what's been happening. And as soon as he does, an energy overwhelms him. He's unable to put the wards back up. He loses control of himself and is traveling, momentarily disappearing. And when he comes back, the student didn't even really realize what had happened. This scene was exciting, and and this is what makes me believe that we're in for it this season. Hmm. (laughs) I'm really curious as to where he went, as well as what the signal is that's calling out to the unprotected travelers. Which has got to be stronger because of these surges in magic. Absolutely. Is it a signal from, you know, it could be one of those that this is a bad signal, or is it a signal from Fen? Just like when one of the Breakbill students was stuck in Fillory trying to communicate to a traveler, come help me. Yeah. Or is it Jane Chatwin? Through someone through a different time frame? That's what yeah. I was thinking. So maybe Penny went to a different time? A different. I, I could definitely see that being part of the equation, and that's how his story links into Fillory, and we've got to find a way to go back in time without destroying both worlds, because I do think whatever they're pondering about messing with time is what's creating this apocalyptic scenario for both Earth and Fillory that Sir Effingham warms us about. It's going down, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen the starting point yet, but I think we will soon. And I hope there's more Penny this season. You know Penny's my favorite. He's got a new scarf, did you notice? Oh, yeah. I want (laughs) to ask, if we get Arjun on, I want to ask him, like, so is it like every season your scarf gets longer? And brighter. And brighter. How long is your scarf this year? I'm a scarf person. I have a new one every day, so I always take notice. What was really fun to watch is if you follow Arjun on any of his social media, he put up a clip today of the behind the scenes of filming that scene where he puts the ward down, starts getting the signal and tries to desperately put the ward that back was up. terrifying. His acting was amazing. And it was so cool to see when, when they say action, you can see that Arjun is getting in the mindset. And it sounds like maybe there was noise of workers. So he says something to the director the director says, okay, guys, can you stop working just for a minute? Just for a minute. Okay, action. And then he goes into it. It's pretty cool just to see, you know, 
how the magic happens. And Arjun does capture that, this intense panic when you realize you just did something. Quick, quick, how do I undo it? And he's yeah. trying to put the wards back up. The fear, the pain, there's so many things happening in a span of five seconds before he's taken away. I'm glad he got back, though. Yeah, I mean... It yeah. seemed like two seconds and nothing happened to us, but we know the way traveling works. There could be way more to it. For now, let's move on to a shorter storyline as far as the time we got in this episode. But again, I'm sure we'll find ways it intersects later. Katie has been receiving requests for help from hedge witches, trying to remove Reed's marks. These are the marks that the library placed upon people so they would not be able to cast magic, told them they were going to remove them later... Of course, now they're falling apart. They're not helping all of them. This all happened last season. Right. And this season, the magicians who are desperate to get their magic back are trying to do it on their own. So, for instance, they're doing spells to try to blast the mark out. And this one guy, (laughs) his friend accidentally blew off his arm. Oops. So Katie reattaches it. Afterwards, Pete talks about the problems he thinks this signals in a greater sense for the library. And Katie believes, well, magic's back. We can just do it ourselves. So they go to seek help from Gavin. Gavin! (laughs) He says the Netherlands Library Medical Manual should have the ritual they need. Even though he used to work for them, he has no allegiance to them now. He'll tell them where to find it for enough money. But he won't get it for him. Never trust Gavin. What they need to do is access a former library book deposit that hasn't been robbed yet. Apparently they're all getting ransacked. And it's really hard to get to this one without being decapitated. Don't know what that means. Well, there's wards to protect them. (laughs) That's frightening. Well, if you think about it, if a lot of people have magic now that they don't understand, but they're excited for, well, how are you going to learn? You got to steal some books. Yeah. Or you got to get books. And if you can't get them, you got to steal them. And that's what's happening. I got to be honest with you. If I tomorrow wake up and I finally have magic, but no one's willing to teach me how to do it, I'm going to find a way to learn. Well, for sure. And we've had this debate in the past in the show. Should people in general, the public, be able to access that knowledge, the library holding very tight to it, and there's no structure to even decide which way they're going with that right now? Well, last season we had too much structure. This season we have not enough. Mm -hmm. We always need some structure in life. Not to the point where it's choking you of your freedom, but you (laughs) you need some structure. It is really frustrating, though, to watch that aspect of it last season when it's so tightly controlled and you just want to break out of it. I think there's going to be some scary, dangerous, but also really interesting avenues they could pursue with magic going the other way, with being too much of it and running rampant. They're laying some good groundwork and some good seeds here. It's just very early in the game. Well, the end of this here is that Katie and Pete go to the location and the building is gone the library book deposit. She thinks someone might have stolen it, though Pete imagines getting through the level five wards would take extreme magical skill. (laughs) So what kind of a person was able to move this whole building? That's something that will unfold as the season goes along. Is it a big bad or is it someone that is trying to help as well? Is it Zelda? Is it Zelda? Oh, there you go. kind of falling off right now. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that Zelda just left. Mm -hmm. The passion she had for the library how devoted she was, she wouldn't just say, oh, it's too much, and go. Maybe she needed to do something that we're not aware of yet. Maybe she's trying to gather back some of these books and help a little bit, even though she thinks she's not fit to rule. Where's Harriet? I forget. 
We might we get yelled at. No, okay. she was lost in the, in the mirror, mirror world, and we thought we would see answers to that at the end of last season with what happened with Quentin, but we never did. Maybe that's what Zelda's doing right now. We're going to have to go back there, and I don't think that means any hope for bringing Quentin back. The showrunners no. were very firm about that being the end of him, but I do think we'll see into the mirror world. Maybe that's where we could get some of these answers because we were left on some cliffhangers about the monsters that were thrown into the seam, which we now realize is the mirror world. That's a pocket world created in between universes. So I think that's, that's got more to mind. There's two other big storylines left to review. The first is in Fillory, where Margot and Elliot are drinking and falling into despair, thinking of their former kingship and missing Quentin. They tried getting into Whitespire for a week, but the new king has high security, and everyone's terrified of him. Well, the good news is, something we've always complained about, Fillory's security always seemed to lack. <laughs> the guards always seemed there, but not really there. And we see firsthand, the guards actually act like guards this time. So again, Fillory has gone to the opposite extreme. <laughs> they even sent a bunny warning Penny 23 not to travel here because there's also this time shift thing going on and they can't leave until they figure out what does that mean. They could go back to Earth at a whole nother time, get stuck there. This could be very scary. While debating their next move, a group of partiers in costume march by on their way to the castle for a celebration of the Great Unshackling. They're able to follow along. <laughs> can't be that easy, get it? they say. But they enter the castle and they see a play about Fillory's history. We mentioned Ember and Umber create the world, ruled by children of Earth. It's a parody. Everyone is taken to the extreme. They talk about there was Elliot who was drunk all the time, Margo who was angry all the time. Josh, the fresh prince. <laughs> Alice who died, sort of. But no matter who was in charge, Fillory remained shackled to them. When the takers came, the borderlands became overrun, People fled for their lives. No one knew where they came from, but they were everywhere. The people asked for help from Josh and King Fen, but the rulers didn't do anything, which I think that's a lie as well. No way they didn't do anything. Yeah. And finally, a humble wizard came to save them, the Dark King. He was made ruler and promised to rule over them justly for as long as he should live, which, by the way, is going to be forever because he's immortal. So this is a crazy dictatorship. <laughs> And he executed Fen and Josh, declaring it the day of the great unshackling. This is what we were terrified of. That is, in fact, the truth that he had them killed. And now Margot is desperately trying to figure out how do we undo that. So the more I think of it, I don't... I mean, I'm, my hypothesis earlier in this podcast about the takers, I may be way off there. But I was trying to think in regards to the hyperbole used in this play that maybe they weren't overrunning it and people fleeing everywhere. Well, and maybe this is why Fen and Josh weren't doing anything about it because they weren't enemy invaders. They were just children of Earth. Right. There could be a whole other side to the story, I'm sure there is, or it could be something legitimately scary, another maybe. conqueror we're not aware of. It could be people we considered friends, like the fairies. Who knows? Similar to the fairies, yeah, but I don't think it'll be the fairies. Well, but like they wanted something from Fillory at right. the time. It seemed like they were conquering invaders we had to oh, rid, I see, yeah. rid them of. But this is all we really get for now, and then it shifts focus. Margot runs from the room upset, tells Elliot it's not over yet, and she has an idea. They murdered them. They murdered the shit out of them. Okay, yeah, like 300 years ago, all right? Look, 
Maybe you didn't have time to prepare yourself for this, but you have to know it didn't end well for them. Yeah, well, it's not over yet. We're gonna endgame this shit. When did you have time to go see Endgame? Doesn't matter. All I'm saying is we're gonna time fix this bitch. In the center of Fillory is a clockwork heart built by dwarves. They're the ones who taught Jane Chatwin how to do time magic. Jesus, Helene and Bonham Christ, read the books already out. We're gonna dial back the clock 300 years to before all this bullshit. When I was High King, I started excavations to reach it. I wanted to meet the clock dwarf who takes care of the clockwork heart. Come on. She blasts a hole in the wall and they jump down into this deep pit. Hitting the bottom, they discover a cave-like room where the dwarf works. Very interesting, there's several astrolabes. Very reminiscent of Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, I got excited. I wish we spent a little more time here visually because it's fun to look at. Mostly though, the dwarf is just lamenting the lack of a ham sandwich. Why is it always about food? Yeah, this the magicians love food. But also I thought it was funny, ham sandwich, we just were talking to a pig who's an asshole. Effingham. Yeah, so. <laughs> he is funny though, this dwarf. Yeah, do you think he's going to be as useless as it seems as at this point? No, he is incredibly important. In fact, nothing in Fillory, we find out, runs right if he's not here 24-7 operating this clock. He says if he leaves, there's massive disruptions in the flow of time magic. This is why he's just sitting here eating his cave mushrooms. So it doesn't even look like there's anybody else. What happens if he gets sick, if he does leave for a moment? If something malfunctions with this clock, it seems like it has to work Perfectly. This and it has malfunctioned. The beating heart of Hill, of Fillory we didn't know existed. Yeah. It reminds me of when Margot had to talk to the heart of the Munchak so that they were able to operate the ship. Well, the ship kind of was a sentient being unto yeah. itself. Doesn't work out as well here. Margot asked the dwarf for help as Earth and Fillory fell out of sync. Uh, Big old surge of magic. Skipped the gears forward. I had to crank down on it to, uh, before it went too far. Okay. How about you just wind it back 300 years then? I uh, can't. Th these clock gears aren't made to go backward. Uh, I could probably jump you forward 300 years if you want. Why the shit would we want to go another 300 years in the future? Well, why would you want to go 300 years in the past? Because all our friends are dead and the world is fucked. Oh, wow. Sorry, uh... These mushrooms, uh, they also get me high, and so I don't always pick up on emotional cues. Look, you're a smart dwarf, right? Yeah. There's got to be some way to skip back. I mean, this whole thing is already impossible, isn't it? Yeah. We're sorry we didn't bring you snacks. Oh, this isn't even about the snacks. Uh, if I wound the clock backward, it would, it would just be bad. How bad? Because it's bad now. Like apocalypse bad. It would destroy Fillory. So I'm sorry. I, I wish I could help you. But see, I wouldn't have left. I would have been like, how? Explain to me how it would destroy. <laughs> well, we never quite got how this time thing worked. That sometimes they could come from Fillory, go to Earth. It's wibbly wobbly. And it's this time magic that is ever present and there is a way to manipulate some of it. Re-Jane Chatwin, we're going to talk that later. But the bigger, more central part of it is here with this main clock we weren't aware of. So you can't mess with that. That's too big, too much. Returning to the castle, Margot is angry. 
She becomes frustrated with Elliot's seeming lack of emotions. Why doesn't he care as much as she does? She thinks the only reason he isn't upset is he's medicated and in denial. He insists he doesn't remember anything from his experience with the monster. He does say Q's death hurts, but he doesn't want to talk about it. And we can't forget how close Q and Elliot were. They spent a whole lifetime together on a different timeline, I Mm -hmm. guess you would say, and came back here together and were in love. So they, even Margot doesn't know how much Elliot truly loved Q. Not 100%, but I think she does know this is why she's getting upset with him. You must feel this even on a more intense level than me, and you're not letting yourself. You're not processing it. You're trying to drink it away. You're trying to shove it down. you got to do something with it. And he just can't yet. So she says if he can't be real with her, she needs some time apart. She storms off down the hall and is accosted by a man who knocks her out and puts her in a prison cell. During the scene, I was thinking, they're being very nonchalant about being in this castle. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you guys should be a little more concerned. I think they kind of foolishly fell back into, this used to be their home. Yeah. You know, and they are off guard for a moment. Not smart. Now alone in the cell, Margot sees a ghostly version of Josh, scared of his impending death and saying how he misses her. I think that stood as a reminder to us, the love that they had for each other, and how much this loss means to her as well. We're not just mourning the loss of Q, although as viewers we know there's a more finality to that, as opposed to Josh and Fenn. We will get them back, but how? That's the quest we're on. Yeah, this whole excursion last season affected everyone. Speaking of, let's go to our last character, maybe most impacted at this point. Alice is back at home. Her mother comes to wake her with another letter from the library. She says she's okay with her staying there and letting herself go, sleeping into the afternoon, not doing anything, but she needs her help with something. And in typical fashion, she takes her to show her the multitude of perfect orchids she's produced. The surplus of magic has made them just keep growing. And she needs to pick one for her garden club perennial competition. Desperate to get out of the house, Alice contacts Phyllis. First of all, Stephanie is crazy. And I got a good view of that, of how crazy she was in the graphic novel that Lev Grossman released this summer. The fact that she, the emergency is flowers. It just plays right into that. That she's cheating, producing through magic. Against no matches. Desperate to get out of the house, Alice contacts Phyllis from the library, and she insists to her she still isn't accepting a job. But Phyllis reassures her she just needs a phosphoromancer for the afternoon. Taking her to the library, they find it in a state of disrepair. She says everyone's abandoned them. They lost most of their branches. They can't even reach their people in the underworld, which is curious. Zelda is apparently a mess. After Alice refused her help, she said she couldn't be trusted to lead and ran off. Phyllis doesn't know who's running things. She just keeps doing her job. She shows Alice the book she needs help with, The Branch Index. The phosphoromancer who originally put this section together is now dead, so she needs Alice to unlock it. Alice seems to delay a while. We don't, oh, yeah. don't quite know what's going on until the woman leaves, and she unlocks the page. She delays while the woman gets drunk. <clears throat> Finding the volume she wants, Alice runs to the stacks, reveals the section of hidden books, and grabs the Book of Quentin. And leaves. Oh, Alice. At home, she's really going through it. Her mother comes and shares a cigarette with her. Alice thinks she's judging her as usual, but Stephanie says no one can tell her how to grieve. If she needs to do something crazy to get through it, then she should do something crazy. Kind of seems like good advice. You know, everyone grieves differently. 
No one can tell you how to grieve, but go ahead, do something crazy. <laughs> and I say this often too, there's no right way. It depends what stage you're going through, what individual things you're bringing to the table. Not everybody is just going to be sad and cry for a period of time. Maybe you're going to be angry like Margot, and that's okay. Be angry. That's exactly what she's telling Elliot. Just let it out. Process it. You can't ignore it or shove it back down. That's when it's really going to do damage and eat away at you. The issue here is that Alice doesn't know what to do with any of that. And telling her to do something extreme... I understand that Stephanie's trying to empathize with her. Maybe the first time she's actively trying to engage with that, she knows what it's like to lose someone, but also know your daughter. Mm -hmm. Because Alice does something very dangerous. She takes the book and begins a spell. We see that she's performing it over the body shaped of living clay. Well, We've that's, seen this before. Yeah, and that's where the clay went missing that Dean Fogg was talking about that's earlier. Right. She's making a golem. One has to believe it's a Quentin golem. Again, this is going to bring up a lot of questions. Does this mean we're going to see Jason Ralph in the form of this Quentin golem? I don't think so. I don't know where that's going to go, if this spell is going to fail, hopefully. I'm really wondering, and I'm racking my brain, as to why Alice would think this is a good idea. It would be one thing if they've never seen what a golem does and acts like, but they've seen it with Margot. Quentin had to beat the Margolem with a bat, right? Yeah. So what is she trying to get out of this? Now, and I won't spoil it for people, but the sci-fi website, The Magicians, hmm. they made a mistake that we will talk about in the spoiler section. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Alice is a very powerful magician. There's a surplus of magic back in the world. She's extremely smart. She has the book she needs. I can't imagine how this magic would fail. So I'm left to hope that either she regrets it, she doesn't go through with it, she does and it doesn't do any harm. It's certainly going to put her in a bad place moving forward. But that's where our episode ends. Leaving us with the questions we've been pondering, are there further ramifications to Penny 23 signing another contract? And does <laughs> Dean Fogg know anything about that? What is the signal he starts receiving from who? Why does it override his wards and where was he taken? What's going to happen with the library falling apart? Why are they out of contact with the underworld? Where's Zelda? Where did that library book deposit go? And how will the hedge witches tie into the main storyline? Who are the takers that came to Fillory? Will Margot go back in time? And what's going on with that golem? So since we've been teasing it, let's get to our closer look and start off by talking about the clockwork heart dwarf. Dwarves are known as expert craftsmen and builders. They can create magical items and possibly hold a greater understanding of time magic and how to manipulate it. They were known to have created the pocket watch that enabled Jane Chatwin to make time loops. When she destroyed that object, she retired herself to the clock barons to study time magic with them. Now, we believe the watch on the open title sequence is said watch or a new one that may be built. So she said she destroyed it. I mean, did she? What happened to it? Are there multiple time frames? We do know that's the case with the key. We'll get to that in a minute. That's what horomancy is, also known as clock magic, that we're getting to see a lot of here, an obscure discipline that deals with the creation of magical clocks for various effects. They can manipulate time, weather, optics, temporal manipulation. Again, most of what we know about that was through Jane who was given this stopwatch by the dwarves after Martin went missing to try to fix that. She attempted to use it several times to rid Fillory of the beast that Martin had become until she was finally successful, and we learned through our magician storyline why. In a day in the life, 
our favorite episode. In search of the key to greater magic, the third key on our quest that season, Q and Elliot had to live an entire life in this timeline. They had to solve this mosaic problem. Jane, of course, had tried to do it when the dwarves told her the watch needed the key to power it. It was a two-part equation, but she found someone had already completed it because they had done it. When Q gets to the end of this journey and realized that's what happened, she needed it to stop the beast, he gave it to her. After Jane was successful, she destroyed the watch so that Quentin couldn't go back to try to save Alice or undo this work. She rapidly starts aging and retires to the Clock Barons, where she continues studying with the dwarves. That's when Margot goes to visit her there to inquire how to save Fillory. She told Margot she only died on the linear plane, not in the Clock Barons, this place outside of time. The key she had there with her. She needed to keep the clock baron stable. Mm-hmm. That's what Margot was initially asking for. So she couldn't give her that, but she tells her where she died on the linear plane. That key was there. That key's with her body at Breakbill, so she could go get that one. That's exactly what Margot did. She rushed to the moment right before Elliot and Q entered that clock on this linear plane to stop them. Mm-hmm. So that everything that happened in A Day in the Life happened, but in that separate little bubble the Quentin and Elliot we know would still be okay. So at the time, crisis averted. And that key, of course, was destroyed later by Alice with all seven keys. Favorite season, season three. But the key that Jean initially had in the Time Barons, we assume, is still there. Now, you can't take that or it destroys the Time Barons. But what does that do to Fillory? We know that messing with the great clockwork heart would destroy it. Would taking the key from the barons just destroy the barons? Would the rest of Fillory be okay? Margot's been there. Might she put two and two together and try to go back? And is that what created the 300-year jump? And near apocalypse, right? Like, it still caused a lot of problems? It could be that time effect where you don't know what came first. So in our head, what came first was Margot. The 300 years had skipped, and Margot has to do something in order to prevent it. But maybe it skipped already because Margot took that key and destroyed the, the barons. Who knows? Just like what happened with Quentin and Elliot. That's why I bring that up, the day in the life, because Margot realizes this all already happened in that separate time frame. I just need to stop present linear Q and Elliot from going in there. Mm-hmm. So it does feel like that's occurred. We jumped forward, something happened in the past, and we're just playing it out now. Margot doesn't quite know how that's going to end on this plane, but the fate is kind of sealed. So given that it was her who went to Jane last time, I think we're going to see that. We're going to see her still try to do something. She's not going to just give up on saving Josh. Right. And maybe that's when the introduction of the Dark King comes in. Who knows at this point? But that's our guess. So we truly believe that the Clock Barons are going to come back into play, and we believe that this can't be the end of the Heart Dwarf. Yeah, the big problem there is you needed the pocket watch and the key. So while that first key is still there in the Barons, the pocket watch was supposedly destroyed. However, in looking at this opening title sequence for the season, having that watch back there... Yeah has got to mean something. It makes me think it wasn't, or there's another one. I mean, I don't know. There's no key, though, so maybe that... There's we don't not. Need, we don't need the key anymore. Can't this heart dwarf create a new one? Well, maybe. That could be another possibility. Do they somehow have to go back to that time bubble where Quentin and Elliot were 
in a day in the life. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. I think that that opens up. Or we're way off because it's only been one episode and what the hell are you doing, Jason? Or it's all about that octopus, you know? (laughs) Maybe that's it. (laughs) All of that is going to take us to our rating for the episode. Each season, we've had a different way to rate. In season two, it was crowns. Season three, keys. Season four, rations. Season five, I think we need to see a little more. I'm going to call it quests for today, but that might change if a greater theme emerges. Yeah, it was very obvious, season three, that it was about keys. Oh, I don't know. We can't say like overabundance. Like we can say rations. Surges. Surges. What do you think about surges? I like surges. All right. On a scale of one to 10 surges, Jason. Well, we're at season five now. So grading is a battle on itself. Basically, the magicians were grading the magicians off the magicians. So it's a higher bar. I believe last season and our favorite season, season three, started off a little stronger. It did. Season three, our favorite, the premiere, Tale of the Seven Keys. I was a 9-3. You were a 9-8. Season four, the premiere, A Flock of Lost Birds. I was a 9. You were an 8-9. Also, we're usually fairly close to IMDb, but IMDb is pretty low at a 6.8 currently. Yeah, I'm not going that low. But I anticipate a lot more magic this season. So I'm just going to start off with a solid 7.5. I enjoyed having magic back into my life. I enjoyed seeing our characters back on screen. I missed the fun of Fen, but we'll get her back soon, hopefully. It's it's setting up the storyline. It's putting our cards into play. I'm sorry to bring up cards <laughs> for people who love Touchy Q. subject, eh? <laughs> I agree. I'm going to go just slightly lower at a seven surges. So I'm above IMDb, a little below you. That's my norm. The previous two seasons, I was super high because the premiere was one of my favorite episodes. Well, last season, if you remember, our heroes were different people in a normal Earth life. And that was just so different and creative. But we wound off the finale last time. Me at a seven, you at an eight. And that's much closer to where we are now. That feels right because this is kind of a, a pickup of that. You know, one month later, where are we? And now we move on to our MVM, Most Valuable Magician. Every week after the episode, we ask our Clatchers via Twitter, at CKC Podcast. So if you want to join follow us. Who is your MVM? This week we gave you Penny, Julia, Alice, Margot, and Elliot. And again, it's the beginning of the season. It's always difficult with every show to find the right ones to put up there because inevitably our heroes will be having issues and be struggling in the beginnings. They're not going to make great actions to help or improve the storyline. We have to struggle for a little bit. Coming in at last place with 16.4% is Alice. There's three hours left on the poll, by the way, so it, this may change a little bit. Also, Clatchers, keep in mind, we will be trying to record every Thursday night, so you'll get 24 hours, basically, to put in your vote. Coming in second place with 19.7% is Penny. One of my most interesting storylines for the premiere. Me too. But again, he hasn't done anything specifically, but the storyline has been developed, and it's very intriguing. It's building up around him. And he's wearing that beautiful scarf. And in second place with 26.2% is Julia. Choosing her quest. She's going to try to do something good with her magic to honor Quentin. She's making the decision, but also still not taking action quite yet. There's a lot of forward momentum, I think, that's going to happen soon. I really like her interactions with Alice as well and how they're able to connect over this. Alice is going astray. Maybe Julia will be able to help her. Maybe. 
Well, let me ask you, the dynamics have changed yet again. In the past, it was Alice who was the quote-unquote strongest magician out of the group. Last year, obviously, it was Julia being a god and everything. Now it's the dynamic is back, right? Alice is probably the, the strongest. Who would you say? Then Julia? Yeah, then- Julia following close behind. It's just Alice also has all of this knowledge that she's accumulated and this rare discipline, plus a willingness to try some crazy stuff. That's kind of always been a thing hmm. with Alice. So yeah, shortly followed by Julia. I mean, Penny has these rare skills because of his rare discipline, so more powerful in certain areas. Yeah. The fact that he can travel and psychically link. So he was probably third in strength. Then I'd say Margot, then Elliot. Yeah, and don't forget, Penny is maybe in a whole other category That's from right. what we've learned seasons past. Part creature. But coming in first place with 37.7% are the team of Margot and Elliot. I think everyone's just happy to have them back together. How could you not put them together on the poll for this episode? And let's be honest, they are the ones that are actually figuring things out already in the first episode. Figuring out what's going on, not necessarily landing landing on how to fix it, but they have a goal in mind. Mainly Margot right now pushing the agenda, but it is the team of them back together that hopefully will get stronger, a little tense right now. Elliot's going to have to save her. She's in jail. Do you think he will? Yes. <laughs> well, let's see what our Clatchers had to say. Melly says they all deserve a vote. Every character has an important and interesting story. I voted for Julia because I think she will save the world and bring back Josh and Finn. And Mel agrees, saying I went with Julia as well. I struggle between her and Penny for this one. I dig it. Sherry Ava, I would like to see Quentin included in the list since more than half of the episode was about how each character was dealing with his death. Then my vote would be for him as we raise a glass to Julia's quest and Penny's journey. I think it's kind of implied in the subtext that you also are voting for Quentin, regardless of who you vote for. It's so ever-present in each one of these characters' journeys, and that's what I like about the showrunner saying he's still going to be there. Yeah, I truly enjoyed that. There's a lot of shows out there that once a character dies in a season... The next season, it's almost as if they didn't exist. Mm. And I'm so glad they didn't go that route. Bert says, I need to watch the whole episode again. It felt kind of discombobulated. Like there were details missing that are pertinent. For sure there's details missing. Yeah. And I think it's on purpose. Some intentionally so, some maybe not. I'm going to reserve judgment till we get further. Amir says, so happy to have this show back in my life. This episode was well done and well organized. I think my favorite part is having Margot and Elliot dynamic back. Absolutely. There we go. You know, I'm going to agree. While I think that it's not quite the same dynamic, there's a lot of struggle still going on between Margot and Elliot. This isn't the same as how they used to be together. They've been apart for a whole season. Elliot's really having difficulty, kind of in denial about this grief. He's regressing. He's regressing. Margot's trying to move forward and figure out a solution, but she feels kind of alone. Yet I do feel as though they are further along in taking action yeah. instead of just at the decision point or wrestling with that experience. So I'm still going to give them my vote for MVM. Okay. Well, I was stuck between Margot and Elliot and Penny. Mm-hmm. Since you went Margot and Elliot, I'm going to go ahead and give it to Penny. And this is... a. Uh, the time of year where Christina gets mad at me for always voting Penny. But here we go. No, I was between that too. Okay. Although he hasn't done anything to push the storyline. Well, no. What am I talking about? He does push the storyline forward. We know for a fact that there's something calling out. There's a signal calling out to unprotected travelers. 
And this means something. And I truly am enjoying and I am hoping that they keep this dynamic of him being a teacher. I think this could be very interesting to see him. You know, they say when you teach, you learn as well. To see him learn off of his teachings. And it keeps Dean Fogg in play, which we're always happy to see. So I agree. That was my struggle. And I'm glad that we got both of them up there. You see Dean Fogg's shoes? No. Styling. Bright orange or bright red. It's one of those. It It was awesome. He's always styling, though. And we know he has some badass suits that are magical. Mm hmm. At least one. We also got some write ins. Nikki said on Patreon that she joined because she has an unhealthy addiction to the magicians and she likes the way we dissect the episodes. She says, I'm super pumped to start on all the other shows you guys cover, but seriously, oh my God, The Magicians is back. I'm so ready to hear your view on whatever amazingness they will surely bring. Don't forget tissues. There's no way we're getting through losing Q without copious amounts of crying. (laughs) And Annie O said, I've been enjoying working my way through the past episodes and curious if you might do a show prior to season five to discuss loose threads from season four. If there had been time, we would have really liked to do that, but hopefully we covered that in this opening. Specifically, though, she says, when Elliot is in his happy place and he introduces memory Quentin to Charlton, he says, Quentin, from that time I convinced him to fight Penny. Was that tidbit necessary? We know Quentin fought Penny in season one, but not that Elliot convinced him to do so. There was no such scene. So why reveal it now so many seasons later? Maybe a flashback is planned? And again, I think... While we're not going to have Jason Ralph still on the show, and I don't want to cling to anything Quentin related, there is stuff to be found in the past that we haven't totally uncovered, and we'll probably learn it through our other characters. I think Elliot's going to have to go on his own journey this season, and it is going to be a deep dive into stuff they went through together, their shared history, what does that mean for the present, and finding his own purpose again. Yeah, I think it would be super impactful if... They end up going back in time, and there is a scene with Jason Ralph, and it's a mixture of the conversation between each other as far as the storyline goes, but then there's also where it sits there for a little bit, and you get that emotional swell, and maybe we get that closure. Mm. And I think it would be a, a, a great emotional moment for the show. But I'm hoping if that does occur, that it's later on in the season. For it to be episode two and three, not enough time has, time, has gone by. They have to hold on to that yeah. promise that this is for real. There's real stakes. How does it affect everyone? But yeah, maybe perhaps later in the season. I like that you made the analogy to a relationship, though. Our final email came from Todd, who says, So here we are back again after I spent a year on the fence of whether to come back or not. I feel like someone who's still with a spouse that cheated on them. I still feel betrayed. I've not forgiven them. But I also feel too invested to just walk away, like there might be more value left in the relationship. My initial reaction to the season premiere is something feels off or missing. Part of it feels like an organic extension of where we left off last season, particularly with Margot and Elliot and Katie and Pete. But Julia's story feels rather contrived, as though they're scrambling for material for her. Penny's story is pushing it a little too far. Dean Fogg says Penny is the only Break Bills trained traveler, but how much schooling did he actually get there? He was the first year in season one, and it wasn't long before the Beast turns everyone's world upside down. I realize this is a different Penny, but the timelines were all interrupted for the same reason, hence the constant resetting. It occurs to me if they were going to kill off a main character, maybe it should have been Alice. I suppose since she had already died, they didn't think it would give the impact they were looking for. Overall, I'm glad to revisit all of these characters, but I'm wondering where the show is going in the future. 
So that's a bunch of things in there. I, I hear you about feeling so emotional. I went back to our last season finale and we had a million conflicting feelings. <laughs> as I'm sure the show knew they would taking the main character, but yes, invested so much and there's so much we still love about it. We're still really excited for season five. What are they going to do with this? And I think it was a slow starter. So a lot of people probably aren't going to be sure where they're landing yet. We haven't seen enough yet. We need to give it a little more time to unfold. I also agree some things felt more of an organic extension of last time, like the Margot Elliott thing. There was some stuff that was a little bizarre, but resetting the chessboard can be that way sometimes. As far as Penny is concerned with only having one year of schooling, now I'm going to be the one getting mixed up with books and TV Mm -hmm. shows. In the book, they have at least four years, I believe. I think you're right. I always get confused too, and this is why I don't often bring it up, but I think it's four years in the book and in the show they made it just grad school, two years. But I think the thing is, There's hardly any travelers, period. Before this surplus in magic, Penny was one of very, very few. They couldn't even find anybody to teach him. So I think that regardless that he wasn't there that long. He also has life experience. Right. That's the... He's someone who can tell Mm -hmm. these students something. Who else are you going to get? Like we said, we don't even know where Mayakovsky's at right now. I think that the AV Club put it really well when they did their write-up. They said... If the magicians can find a way to tie together these various mourning, screwed-up heroes and have them keep battling their way toward the best versions of themselves, there's probably always going to be a good reason to keep watching the magicians. Absolutely. So, Todd, I'm just glad that you're here and you're with us. Let's have some fun. (laughs) Jason, that's going to do it except for our spoiler section. So before we move on to the spoilers, we want to say this episode we're going to try to get out a little earlier. So we're thinking Friday during the day. But we anticipate for the following weeks for the podcast to be out Saturday mornings just because of we'll get home Thursday nights, we'll record, and then we have work Friday. So I'll be doing the editing late at night, early in the morning, and during lunch. So sometimes we'll get it out a little earlier, but anticipate Saturdays. Saturdays is going to be the norm, just so you know what to expect. And if you always want to find out when that episode is going to be released, just go to coffeeclatchcrew.com. On our homepage, we have a countdown clock. That's the easiest way to track all the episodes dropping for Coffee Clatch Crew. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast, Facebook, Instagram. And if you like what we're doing and you want to support, check us out over at Patreon. If you are afraid of the spoiler section, we will see you next time when we review episode two. For those of you still here, we have the predicted episode titles. For the rest of the season. I'll start off first with just episode two, which is called The Wrath of the Time Bees. So already we're Mm -hmm. getting whatever those bees are floating around the pocket watch that we see on the opening screenshot we discussed earlier. That's not random coincidence that they're together. Those bees do have something to do with time. In the preview, they say your world will be destroyed. Castings will be exponentially magnified. Enchantments will malfunction going to be the end of earth and fillery alike so this apocalyptic event whatever it is is getting worse they also find something that q had and they say what was q doing with something so powerful some type of magic something he was writing down i don't know if this is something they found in the book that julia gave to alice oh where his notes were in the corner if or if it was with some of his other stuff that they just uncovered but he was into something magical that we weren't aware of And I don't know if that comes to pass based on Alice creating this golem that she's able to talk to and get more out of, but 
here's where you, Jason, can tell us about that sci-fi spoiler. So looking at the episode photos on Sci-Fi of the Magicians, they have a photo of a kid who is playing the child Quentin. So we know the golem will, at least at first, be a child. But it's Quentin. But it's Quentin. So they already kind of lied. He's back in some shape. It's just not Jason Ralph. Yes. So they stuck to the letter of that. Man, whoever put that up is going to be in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking at it. I was like, we didn't see this scene. And then I read the caption. And I was like, oh, yeah, we did not see this scene. I mean, you could put two and two together. Obviously, Alice is making Quentin. Who else would it be? She's got his book. Like we said, her magic is pretty good. It's probably going to work. There was always the possibility she backed out of it. But I'm not sure why he comes back as a kid. Unless, I mean, that body looked like she was trying to bring back an adult, no? Yeah. It'll be explained. Maybe uh, a power surge. Hmm. I'm wondering if that was supposed to be the end of the episode. The golem pops up and it's the kid and then it ends. And then maybe last minute they chose to end it in a different section. To be a cliffhanger. And you know, I work at IT. I know that something that looks like a project that's you know, a group of people working together in a room is often different departments and maybe the word didn't get out. Pull that photo. That's no longer in the first episode. Hmm. That's interesting. But we still have no idea where that's going to lead or what these bees have to do with anything. Now, they have confirmed the episode titles through four. Three is called The Mountain of Ghosts and four is Magicians Anonymous. People addicted to magic? Well, I guess now that there's a surplus, yeah. that's going to create all kinds of other issues, right? Mm-hmm. Five through 13 are up in certain places, but definitely not confirmed. And what's strange is the titling is different. A lot of them are a little bit kind of funnier sounding. It's more like the strange short synopses they've been putting up on the website that are always about food. And they're trying to be kind of humorous. And we're saying, what's going on with that? So I don't know. I I don't feel good about these being the real titles. But just to put it out there, what we have from 5 through 13 is Apocalypse Now? Question mark, exclamation point. Oops, I did it again. Acting Dean, Garden Variety Homicide, Cello Squirrel Daffodil, Purgatory, oh boy, Be the Hymen which has to be correct because around that title be the penny was be the penny. And interesting that we could see Hyman back. Number 12 is called the balls. Maybe. (laughs) And 13 Fillory and further, which is of course the series, right? The book series. So I have a feeling that those last couple are right on. Who knows? What's the uh, apocalypse apocalypse now? Maybe that's when Margot makes that jump stops it from happening now. Hopefully not now. We don't know where we are in time. Yeah, that would make sense. But anyway, it's a lot of food for thought. We don't normally get even an inkling of our titles. Maybe a couple into the future to have them all the way through the rest of the season is something we can continue to analyze in our spoiler sections. And absolutely none of that is for sure, guys. It's not like we get authorized information from anywhere. It's just searching around on the internet. It's pure conjecture, much like our wild and crazy theories, but we have a ton of fun with this. So Clatchers, we look forward to talking to you guys again next episode. If you want to write in, you can write in contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com or Twitter, or you can call us and leave a message at ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606. Zero six, and leave a message to be played on the podcast. Till next time, this round's on me. 
This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.